This is Religion and Theology, a podcast from the Center for Theology and Religious Studies. This is the second lecture from The Art of Listening, a symposium to mark the 40th anniversary of Collegium Patristicum Lundense. And this time, Samuel Byskog, professor of New Testament studies at Lund University, will deliver a lecture on the topic, The Bible and the Art of Listening, Confession and Interpretation. Thank you very much. And as you see, the subtitle is Confession and Interpretation. I will come back to that, of course. Thank you very much, first of all, for letting me do this lecture. I hope you will be able to listen to it. To it. Uh, partly it will be more of a technical lecture than the previous one. I will bring you with me to the laboratory of a biblical scholar, and but I hope I, I can't sing that thing, so I have to speak, and I hope you will be able to listen. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Akoe Israel, Kyrios Hotheos Samun, Kyrios Heis Estin. Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is certainly a text that has to be mentioned a day like this. It is the classical text of listening in the Bible. And it surfaces in different ways in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament. This is, so to say, listening as confession. Hearing was an act of faith and obedience. It had, of course, also other less confessional dimensions in the Bible, dimensions that relate to the simple fact that texts were performed and heard in Greek and Roman antiquity, and hence also in ancient Israel and early Christianity. The well-known historian Thucydides, in Book 1, way back in the 5th century before Common Era, he was aware that historical material consists of the words that are spoken, and deeds that occurred, erga, and divides the material into that which could be registered through the ear and that which could be registered through sight. And the rhetoricians, somewhat later, as is well known, favored oral performance and ordinary people, mostly unable to read for themselves, had to listen to the public reading and appropriate texts by hearing them being read aloud in different settings, in the theater, the public agora, at home or in other settings. I wish to elucidate both aspects of listening, that of listening as a confession and that of listening to oral performance of a text with special attention to a few passages in the New Testament. The Shema, the most cru crucial Jewish confession, 
starts, as we saw, or as we heard, with a call to listen and links the act of listening to the confession to the one God. In traditional Jewish prayer practice, these lines from Deuteronomy 6.4 were prayed in the morning and in the evening, and it has become one of the most influential identity markers in Jewish history. The Shema appears in the opening section of Deuteronomy, which is a collection of speeches attributed to Moses before the next generation of Israel entered the promised land. The opening line, listen Israel, does not simply mean to let the sound waves enter your ears. Rather, the words listen here means to allow the words to sink in, provide understanding, and generate a response to the one God. And the response is threefold. To love with your whole heart, with your whole soul, and with all your strength. And it forms the fundamental covenantal bound of love of God. In the reception history of this confession, the initial command to listen falls away, and the focus is directed to the threefold command. Moving to early rabbinic times, now there is competition of listening, isn't it? <laughs> Moving to early rabbinic times, it is evident that the confession had gone through significant interpretations. The Mishnah, while omitting the command to listen, interprets its threefold command in Brachot 9.5, saying that you should love God with your whole heart, with both your inclinations, with the good inclination and the evil inclination. You should love God with your whole soul, that is, even if he takes your soul, your life. And you should love him with all your strength, that is, with your whole property. For whatever measure he measures to you, you shall bring to him an overflowing thanksgiving. This text is found also in Sifre, and in more developed form also in the Targumim. Taken together, they imply that your heart must not be divided in the love of God, that you must be prepared to give up your life in martyrdom, and that you must place all your material possessions at God's disposal. This is what it meant to truly listen to the one and only God. The detailed uh, discussions of the Shema in the Mishnah, as well as the reports that the priest in the temple recited it, we find that elsewhere in Mishnah, and that the early Tanaitic houses of Shammai and Hillel discussed it, we find that also in the Mishnah, that point to um, that this understanding of the confession existed already in the first century common era. 
Although the motive of listening itself is not prominent in the reception history, it lurks in the background as a call to obedience, and we find that one New Testament writing in particular picks up the Shema and uses it as an interpretive key to unlocking the obedience of Jesus, elaborating the motif of listening and the Shema in the same narrative world. I'm thinking of the Gospel of Matthew, probably composed in the 80s when the rabbinic movement was struggling to find its identity. Matthew includes both a characteristic emphasis on listening and a subtle use of Shema. Matthew is very fond of the verb akuain, to hear, uses it approximately 63 or 64 times in various ways. Not always in explicit conjunction with the Shema. Jesus speaks in 7.24 and 26 of hearing and doing his words. Later on in 7.15 and following, it becomes evident that hearing and doing must go hand in hand, as in the Shema. Hearing and also doing relates perhaps to the beginning, uh, to the beginning of the Shema elsewhere in Matthew. The author quotes Shema in 22.37 acknowledging it as the most important command in the Torah. And I will argue that he uses the Shema to interpret Jesus' obedience to God and the disciples' obedience to God and to Jesus. The first aspect is Jesus' obedience to God. We need to remember that the Jewish author of Matthew and the Jewish audience of this gospel had most likely internalized the Shema as a confession recited every morning and every evening in Hebrew or other languages. There is a passage in the Yerushalmi which mentioned that it was even recited in Greek in Caesarea. It was, so to say, the cognitive religious lens through which they understood obedience. So when Jesus' obedience is tested in 4, 1 through 11, it is the pericope misleadingly labeled the temptation of Jesus. When Jesus was tested, it was natural to hear allusions to the Shema. As Birger Gerarsson, the former New Testament professor in Lund, showed in detail already in the 1960s, a study that has been much neglected internationally, in 4, 1 through 11, all quotations are taken from Deuteronomy 6 to 8, and the, text, the, te- the testing of Jesus follows the rabbinic interpretation of the command to love God with all your heart, that is, with both your inclinations, 
with your whole soul, that is, even if God takes your life, and with all your might, that is, with your whole property. When tested, Jesus proves that he loves God by allowing the word of God and not the evil inclination to reign his heart. By acknowledging God to decide over his life, and by renouncing all the properties of this world for the service of God. Jesus is, according to Matthew, true to his daily confession of listening to the one true God. So what about the disciples' obedience to Jesus, their hearing and doing his words? This is more difficult and has been given less attention because it touches on the ambivalent Christology of this gospel. The yoke of Jesus in 11.29 is significant. It certainly relates to yoke of wisdom, it relates to the yoke of wisdom in Sirach 6. And 51, as most scholars recognize. What is rarely noticed, however, is that the Bensirach 626, which I have marked there, when referring to the yoke of wisdom, relates to the Shema and commands his pupil, its pupil, to draw near to wisdom with all your soul and to keep her ways with all your power. In rabbinic literature, the connection between the yoke and the Shema is explicit. You take the yoke upon yourself when you recite the Shema. To accept the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, according to the rabbis, the kingdom of heaven is the favorite expression of Matthew, means to recite the Shema. In Matthew, the yoke is not that of wisdom and that of the kingdom of heaven, but of Jesus' own teaching. He invites the disciples to learn his teaching by listening to him and obeying the Shema. In addition to these passages, let me also mention significant references to Hayes Estin in the Gospel. There is only one, perhaps alluding to the Adonai Echad in the Shema. Hayes Estin ho Agathos in 1917, there is only one who is good probably a reference to the goodness of God. That is Jesus' response to the question of what to do in order to inherit in eternal life. And even more prominent is the threefold Heis Estin in 23, 8 through 10. One is your didaskalos. One is your pater. One is your catechetes. 
oscillating between Jesus and God as the only one. Heisestin, Heisestin, Estin Heis, reminiscent for the attentive and pious Greek-speaking Jewish listener of the Shema, Hotheos Hemun Kyrios Heisestin. The cautious conclusion that we might draw is that the classical confessional act of listening was important as a means to incorporate the Jewish notion of obedience into the early Christian understanding of Jesus' obedience to his Father and the disciples' obedience to him. It is significant that Paul uses the commandment of love several times and the notion that God is one serves as an axiomatic and non-negotiable non statement in his otherwise very complex line of argumentation. His it is his, convic his conviction that the Jewish covenant includes the Gentiles is based on his conviction that God is one. God is not only the God of the Jews, but also of the Gentiles, because God is one. That is an axiomatic statement. He says in Romans 3.30, after a complicated argument about the righteousness of God. Paul, the earliest Jewish theological thinker in early Christianity, from whom we have texts, probably continued to confess it every day, reciting the command to listen morning and evening and integrating it into the new messianic presence. So at the heart of early Christianity stands this confessional act of listening and on this basis the monotheistic faith became manifest. It is perhaps no exaggeration to claim that long before Christian confessions were formulated, probably rooted in the life of Jesus himself, the Jewish idea of listening fostered obedience and laid the foundation of Christian ethics. The difficult and controversial factor is perhaps not the deep roots and religious sensibility of listening, but the way the Shema already in the first century seems to be transformed, so that Jesus' Jewish obedience to God was intertwined with the disciples' Christ-centered obedience to God and to Jesus. Matthew illustrates this Christological tension by relating the act of listening both to God and to Jesus, oscillating narratively between Christologies where obedient listening directs itself to God and to Jesus. I now turn to the second part of this lecture, listening as interpreting oral performance. It is religiously perhaps less significant, but equally intriguing 
to look at the act of listening to a text being read aloud, performed. It is commonplace today that New Testament writings have a strong rhetorical dimension, both technically and effectively, and that they were composed for persuasive oral performance. Performance criticism has been labeled as another criticism of New Testament studies. We have a number of criticisms, that is methods, and performance criticism is now one of them and has, in my opinion, been employed in an exaggerated fashion with wild gestures accompanying the oral reading of a text. Don Nesselquist, who Samuel mentioned, former doctoral student of New Testament studies here at Lund University, has studied precisely this extensively and criticized the previous trend of performance criticism and elaborated ideas of sound analysis in order to grasp the effect of reading the effect it has on the people listening to the performance of the writing on a manuscript. His study makes an analysis of the soundscape or a sound analysis of John, the first four chapters in the Gospel of John. And we have together tentatively also directed attention to other texts. I will illustrate this from my work on the commentary on Romans. Letters were meant to be read aloud to an audience at some distance from the author. Although aware of the fact that the author could not be present, the epistolary theorists mention several times that the letter replaces the presence of the author when performed effectively. So Paul, when writing his letter to the Romans from Corinth in the mid-50s, was aware that he addressed communities that he had never visited by me, and he did so by means of an epistolary form that somehow should imitate, if not replace, his presence. And we regularly find traces of this awareness in the way he formulates himself. We will look at two examples. One of the most effective and simple ways to study sound as an interpretive clue is to look for the use of the same type of sound in a limited passage. The effect could vary depending on what sounds that were used, but as a general rule for interpreting such passages, it is more adequate to listen to the text and its audible effect than to philologically separate lex lexicographical word meaning. A straightforward example is Romans 1, 29 through 31. Paul describes how God delivered men and women to deplorable ways of thinking and acting and wishes to give a rhetorically effective impression of their sinfulness and intersects the passage with specific sounds effects. 
Numerus 29, Pase, Adekia, Poneria, Pleonexia, Kakia. You can hear and you can feel it. Next, Phthonu and Phonu, he plays on the sound. Verse 31, Asynetus, Asynthetus, Asturgus, Anelie Munas. These sound effects are, of course, lost in translation. They remain within the, parad the, the, the translations remain within the paradigm of translating the words according to the lexicographical meaning, and miss the strong oral effect of the sounding of the Greek terms. When listening to the text, there is no significant difference between adekia, poneria, pleonexia, kakia, here translated wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice. No significant difference between phthono, phono, translated envy, murder, and no significant difference between asinetus, asinfetus, astorgus, aneleemonas, translated foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The performer has come to a climax continuing with stating that God has decided that all deserve death. And the listeners receive an impression of what a truly deprived human being is. To be noted is that the sequence ends with repeated sigmas. Such hissing sounds included in consonants such as theta and phi, and S sounds in sigma, xi, and psi, produced according to the standards indicated by both Dionysius of Halicarnassus and Quintilian, significant dissonance and effects of negative feeling. Don't use too many S sounds if you want to create a positive feeling. We receive a first indication that listening to a text rather than reading it silently affects its interpretation. Let us turn also to a more theologically loaded text, Romans 9, 3 through 5. And it's here, it will become a little bit more technical, but I'm sure you will be able to follow. The majority of scholars, New Testament scholars and theologians all over the world, argue that we here find a text, the only one, where Paul explicitly calls Christ God, Theos. The comma after katasarka, which you see here. The comma after katasarka points in this direction. Translations reflect a similar position. 
we have translates the, the, the translation from the new revised standard version to them belong the patriarchs and from them according to the flesh comes the messiah who is overall god blessed forever amen similarly also in the latest swedish translation just to mention a few but as we all know the punctuation is secondary and this passage has a number of possibilities if we hypothetically would insert a full stop after epipanton we translate messiah according to the flesh who is over everything full stop god be blessed forever if we put full stop after Katasarka. We translate, God who is over everything, be blessed forever. In both cases, Paul would not claim that the Messiah is God. There are many philological and theological arguments in either direction. To me, the most decisive consideration is that blessings are mostly directed to God also in Paul's letters. The blessing here ends a section starting with an emphatic statement that Paul is not lying in 9.1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, he says in 9.1. In 2 Corinthians 11.31, Paul similarly blesses God who knows he's not lying. And Paul never elsewhere calls Christ God. Philippians 2.6 comes close, perhaps using curios with divine connotations. But here Paul rather ascribes divine categories to Christ, which might be something else. This is where sound analysis can help us a little bit further. What is rarely noticed is the wordplay going on in verses 4 and 5 with the repeated whom. So let us look at the text again and structure it somewhat differently, leaving out the confusion, confusing punctuation. And it might look like this. In particular, the phrase in 5a might sound to the hearers as if the lector, the performer, repeated the relative pronoun hun several times in order to emphasize what comes from the Israelites. But then comes hun epipantum, where hun cannot be a relative pronoun, although sounding precisely as one. Reading the text aloud, the relative pronoun sounds almost identically with the participle of to be. A me, un, especially when this participle is preceded by ho. Instead of using the simpler expression hos estin, 
who is. Paul employs the similarities of sound with the relative pronoun whom. And in this way, Paul formulates a rhetorically effectful way of pointing to what has come from the Israelites, the Christ according to the flesh. Adding to this, and this is where Nesselquist has helped me, Paul seems to use the specific structure of the Greek period, periodos, used at oral performance to drive home his point. Nesselquist defines a period as artistically arranged cola that end with a rounding connecting the end to the beginning. Pseudo Demetrius, one of the literary theorists, says that the sophisticated arrangement of the parts of a period brings, I quote, the underlying thought to a conclusion with a well-turned ending. It's in Perihermeneias, he says that, the elocuzione. The clause, so to say, bends back at the end, connects to the beginning and form a circle, so to say. Romans 3 to 5a seems to contain two period features. First, it bends back at the end. The final clause, houn epipantum, who is uh, he who is over all, refers back to Christ in the first column in 3a and establishes the circular structure of the entire period. The lector refers back as she or he should do. Second, this passage displays a significant symmetry in 4b and 5a through the connections between the three times repeated hoon and the following hoon. If all this is correct, the blessing in 5b does not belong to the period. We need to imagine, as was normal practice at this time, that the lecture made a brief pause, silence, a brief pause after the period itself was finished, during which the listeners could react. As Quintilian puts it, or points out, quote, this is where the speech rests, during which this is what the listener awaits in silence. This is when all, break, all praise breaks out, end of quote. Paul composed Romans 9 through 5 in such a way that the lector also provided the listeners with, in, with an appropriate response in the form of a blessing. After that the period was finished, and after the brief silence. 
So rather than being a description of Christ, the blessing is a joint response to it. The listening audience was given the clues of interpretation by oral features. And they were drawn into the text and into the performance at the closing moment of the performative act. So what do we conclude from this? Listening in the Bible is a rich topic of both listening in a confessional act of obedience and listening to the text of the Bible. We live today with a plurality of media of communication, a confusing plurality that we either shut down or we try to listen to everything at the same time. In times and places where the written word and the silent reading seem to still somehow dominate the hierarchy of the status of texts, and where meaning and textual signs are to be decoded. But also, in the same times and places where the spoken word takes over in political and other kinds of performances, leading and misleading the audiences with dangerous and powerful rhetorical maneuvers. During such ambiguous times, the listening to texts becomes an urgent topic of scholarly research across various academic fields, from rhetoric to philosophy to history and to theology. Today I focused on Shema, the confessional act of listening, and on listening as interpretation of texts. The scholarly attention today focuses internationally on the second aspect. Some work has been done through the study of ancient rhetoric and performance, but much remains to do things that integrate the technical aspects of performance and listening into theological thinking and discourse and interpretation. What did the poorly educated hearers of Rome really understand theologically when they heard the text for the first time being read to them? What did they understand the second time they heard it? The third time, the fourth time it was performed to them? Is it possible to work with chronologically successive readings in the interpretation of texts so that second and third readings and listening among the first addresses and readings and listening in the reception history and church history are on equal hermeneutical status without creating the hierarchy where the first hearing should be decisive. What happens to the listening 
as interpretation when hearing the same text performed again and again? What was the role of the lector or performer in guiding the hearing and interpretation of the text with gestures, eyes, voice, etc., during the different readings? And what if this, these guides would be different depending on different readings? What role did the geographical and local setting of hearing play, especially if they varied at different performances of the same text, if it was performed in the home or at the theatre or at the school? What happens to the idea of the correct interpretation of the text once we start negotiating with different hearings more or less attached to the authorial indications of reading aloud. Such questions, I think, do not lead us back to the endless theoretical discussion of authorial intentionality versus read response, but promise to point to historical acts of performance and listening as decisive backbones of modern literary theory and theology. So the doors seem to be wide open again for historical investigations and theologically informed discussions on how to create meaning and meanings in texts that have been heard again and again and again. Thank you.